leadership in cybersecurity isn't just about understanding threats. It's about leading a team to navigate them with confidence. At CPF Coaching LLC, we specialize in taking your leadership skills to the next level. With over 15 years in the cybersecurity field, we empower professionals and startups to reach unprecedented heights. Imagine having a personalized coaching experience tailored to your unique career ambitions. From strategic planning to masterful pitch and interview preparations, we're here to guide you through every challenge. Join us for our unique value proposition workshops or dive into our vibrant learning community for continuous skill advancement. Don't just be a part of the industry. Redefine it. Visit cpfcoaching.com for more information. Discover the leader within. Contact CPF Coaching LLC today and schedule your strategic session. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Breaking into Cybersecurity. Um, thank you all for joining us. This week, we have uh, Nathan Chung, hope I pronounced that right, yes. on with us. And um, we'll be discussing the topic of uh, neurodiversity and diversity within cybersecurity specifically. Um, as a reminder to anyone that's following us, make sure you subscribe on LinkedIn, you follow us on um, YouTube, and you subscribe on your favorite podcast channel. Um, feel free to submit questions. If we see questions, um, we'll be able to tackle them along the way and help address anything that the community wants to hear from us. So uh, first, Nathan, do you want to give us a little bit about uh, a little background about yourself and uh, what brought you to cybersecurity? Sure. And absolutely, uh, Chris, uh, it's a pleasure to be here today. So right now, uh, I'm a senior consultant at Microsoft, the new job I started back in March. I got into cybersecurity maybe five or six years ago. My very first job in cyber was working at Jimbury, a kids retailer which no longer exists, sadly. My first job, I started doing a lot of audit compliance, and it was a great learning experience for me, especially since when the manager quit about two months in, so I had to learn a lot <laughs> on my own in a short period of time. Mm -hmm. Perfect. Um, so how was audit for you? Like, um, was that something that initially interested you? Like what brought you into the audit side of things? It was a entry level position. And at the time I was working in IT and I just wanted to get in cyber because that's, it's a, it's a hot field and there's a lot of jobs. So I, I think that's what, that's why I gravitated towards cybersecurity at the time. Okay. And how have your views changed in regards to um, your approach and your transition? Well, like all IT and cyber jobs, it's it's a constant race. Like new technology are always popping up. Like uh, now, the big the big name now is cloud. So I had to past years. So I made the transition from just security to now. I'm now I'm doing cloud security. So that is a constant challenge for every person in IT and cyber, just keeping up with the technology. Okay. Okay. Um, so I know one of the things that you're very, very passionate about is um, neurodiversity. Um, do you want to explain, set a baseline for everyone that's listening? Um, what exactly is neurodiversity and how is it different from the other diversity that we always hear about? Sure. Neurodiversity is not often talked about, sadly. I myself, I have ADHD and autism. So when people hear that, they the atypical natural thinking is I'm different and they start treating me differently. That is a disservice and does discriminate against people like me because it's been shown that many people who are 
neurodiverse are really good in cyber. Like, for example, in Israel, they have an entire military unit that's mostly full of people who are similar to me, who are who have been proving themselves to really excel at the basic cyber jobs, like looking at log uh, log log analysis and looking at uh, detecting threats. So that alone proves that neurodiverse individuals are really good in cyber. But also the caveat is cyber is not the only job that's good for people who are neurodiverse. There are just many jobs. It's like you got to unlock your creativity and be able to explore what what fits best for you at your given your life journey at the time. And for you, what about cyber really resonated for you? Because um, you mentioned audit. I mean, for me, like just thinking about audit makes my skin crawl. Um, <laughs> like I personally don't like audit. Uh, I love consulting. I love strategy. Um, but the fact to think to go through line by line, uh, log by log or something like that, like that, that totally doesn't interest me. What about audit interests you? Yeah, so that's a good point. So I did struggle with audit compliance. Mm-hmm. And my first job, I was very successful after the magic way. Uh, I was able to get the entire organization PCI DSS compliant, which was difficult, like doing it most, mostly by myself. So I had to partner with the other cyber and IT groups to make, make it happen. Mm-hmm. But I echo your sentiment. It, it is a hard and very difficult uh, job to do. Now, as a consultant, I do you feel that consulting is a better fit, especially for me? Because mm-hmm. there's a defini- definitive start and to every project. So that, like, you, you're not working for infinity. So that, that gives me a little more peace. Absolutely, absolutely. And when it comes to um, other individuals that might have, like, um, ADHD or autism, what are some of the skill sets that they might have that they would excel in? Um, that organizations can take advantage of and use that as a tool in their arsenal versus looking at it as a disability? Ah, so that's a really great question, Chris. One good skill that comes to mind is essentially finding a needle in a haystack, like, like for in a, in a sock rolls and just looking at rolls upon rolls of sturdy data and log data. That is very tedious work and that will bore a lot of people to death but for people like me and some some individuals this is myself they can actually enjoy it they can stare at a computer all day and actually enjoy it and just be totally focused looking at log data all day one example uh when i was working at another retailer i remember an exec was getting locked out of his iphone and a lot of people they were just struggling looking at the logs to try to fine, what is causing this exec to get locked out? Mm-hmm. I was parsing through all that log data. I was able to find this, the root cause of that in roughly one hour. So that's a demonstration of, of neurodiversity being an advantage. Now, can you imagine if more companies do similar to what they do in Israel, just have specialized units working in a SOG, just looking at log data, that can translate to a competitive advantage for some companies to be able to detect that adversary. That is, you also detect, detect an adversary and attack is crucial to, to, uh, to address cybersecurity uh, risks and to lessen the damage an attacker might cause, just be able to detect them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
and, and this study or this are um, airing of like 60 minutes was maybe a year ago now but I know there's other examples of that for example in Germany there's an insurance company that has a whole division um, focused on the neurodiverse workforce and bringing them in but finding like you said that right skill set for them yes. not all of them were focused on analytics or pattern recognition there mm-hmm. were others focused on uh solving critical problems or looking at um things from their approach because uh, if you're colorblind you'll never notice that these colors um affect people so how, how does that affect other things um so yeah it's definitely a, a competitive advantage that companies can consider um over the past couple of years, have you seen an increase in the United States of companies looking to um, increase their capacity of managing neuro- neurodiverse individuals and using that as a competitive advantage? In fact, yes, uh, there has been a few companies like Microsoft, where I work at, they, there's just a huge push to hire neurodiverse workers. Other companies as well, like just, uh, SAP, EY, even Dell. So I do believe that companies are waking up and starting to see the benefits, but the approach to hire neurodiverse workers is still more or less broken at many companies because there's the interview process alone is a huge barrier. Like when I go to interview, it's very stressful and can, can be a bit of a nightmare, not, mm-hmm. not just for me, but other people. The interview process itself is essentially, it's like a social dance. It comes down to more, not necessarily the skill, bring the skill, right skills to the table. It's more like, like, do you like me enough to be able to work with me? And for many people with neurodiverse questions, it's really hard. It's usually they can either like blank out or just not have the right answer. And that, that to an interviewer is usually a red flag that this is a problem. We should not hire this person. So that alone, it, it's a huge wall that will just shut out a lot of people who are neurodiverse like from the get-go. And what are some of the strategies that you might recommend for uh, just a quick improvement there in, in the hiring and recruiting and onboarding process? Yep, great question. Sometimes it's just asking the person, what do they need? Ask, just ask for a combination of what they need. Like for me personally, I would ask for things like uh, or interviewing remotely and also asking for the questions ahead of time that just takes the edge off and anxiety just goes away and I'm free to word, be, be my best self in the interview. And that mm-hmm. really helped. Wow, that's, that's very interesting. Um, and, and I know getting hired is just the first part of the problem. Uh, um, when it comes to retention and operating at your maximal, um, what are some of the challenges that you've seen from hiring managers or managers in general that are managing um, individuals with neurodiversity. Like, um, I'm guessing it's not the same like managing everyone else. Um, that's an mm. assumption on my part, um, I guess being normal. Um. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you have a good point because one common theme I'm hearing from the neurodiversity community is the manager, it's the managers that are sometimes a problem, quite frankly, because they are so used to, they are trained and so used to managing people who are neurotypical, who are normal or able to just do things a certain way. It's like ramming a round peg into a square hole. 
mm-hmm. doesn't work that way. But sometimes it's, it's just simple as to make things better. Sometimes it's just simple as asking, what do you need to, to do the job? Because mm-hmm. I have some friends that, that tackle this problem head on, they're more vocal. They would ask for things like this captions for meetings or having a trans- transcript of meeting notes, small things like that make a huge difference and can help a neurodiverse person excel. Also just having a good pair of headset. Good, good yeah. headset. <laughs> yeah, definitely. All the noise. Yeah, um, and I, I know one of the things, managing people is hard in general. Yes. Um, so I think like trying to figure out what everyone's passions are, uh, ways to o- overcome any challenges that they may have. Um, that that's always a challenge when it comes to someone that do have these challenges. How, how, what's the best way to communicate with a manager, your needs, your wants in, in order to be as beneficial to the team as possible? Mm. So that's a hard question because it starts with the self because a lot of people with neurodiversity are just too afraid because in the industry and globally without throughout our society, there is that negative stigma that if you mm-hmm. are neurodiverse, you're going to look weird, you're going to act weird. And it just is just perceived negatively by people in general and society. Mm-hmm. So to fix that people just neurodiverse people, they have to start with themselves. Like, they have to feel comfortable to disclose that they are neurodiverse. Like right, this, this month is, uh, is, is a great month for uh, to celebrate LGBTQ and, and being gay. If you think about it today, in these days, it's more socially acceptable to be LGBTQ compared to being neurodiverse. That speaks to the huge progress made on that front. But now we got to bring up people who are neurodiverse. Like we cannot, a lot of people are neurodiverse, they're similar to how LGBTQ was back in the day. Mm-hmm. Neurodiverse people are literally like in the closet as well. They're hiding. They don't want to disclose because they're afraid of being discriminated or being treated differently. Mm-hmm. So companies need to do a better job to have the more empathy and just say, we will support you. We will give you what you need to thrive. Just being open about that and to reduce the barriers i think that will go a long way just being more open absolutely uh so i just want to share some of the comments that we have um from our listeners we have lots of lots of folks (laughs) coming in saying hi um and we have some regulars and then we also have some (laughs) some new folks coming on we have uh simon he mentioned staying hired is one of the challenges yes Um, that is a challenge fired several times that he has um, Asperger's. Um, we, we have other folks saying hi from around the world as well. Uh, here's a great question, um, and I'll just put it up for a little bit, but then take it down because it's so big. Mm. Um, <laughs> but can you talk about the fine line of trying to encourage employee growth and placing a lot of attention and focus on the employee who might be neurodivergent and having communication issues mm. um, and prevent discrimination? I think it comes down to, that's a really good question. Part of it comes down to the medium, like for example, like, have, like for me, being in person in office, I struggle. I struggle with social cues. I just struggle with like being in a meeting in person, but remote work now with the COVID and working remotely, 
I am a little bit more comfortable. And it just makes having conversations through like uh, online meetings and IM and email, it, it, I, I'm much more comfortable there. So that's part one, just the medium. And number two, just having empathy, like come down to, does the manager really want you to succeed and do they really, like we term, like sometimes you can feel it between just saying that they want to support you to actually doing it as mm-hmm. singles, actions speak louder than words. <laughs> and what are some of those, what, what are examples of great managers that you've seen that they've um, been able to empower you in the past um, and that someone listening who is a manager can potentially use some of those uh, tactics and techniques to help their workforce? So uh, part one, especially for me, is being open, just having open, honest conversation with your manager. And on the manager side, just having empathy. Sometimes, like, in a tech and cyber world, it's notorious for, for ha- having long hours and burnout. Mm-hmm. So as a result, like, when having discussions, sometimes there's, it's just a rush. Like, we just want to get the meeting over with. We just want to get to the next task. Sometimes you just got to slow down, just get into the zone, so to speak, just be focused on the conversation, like kind of like what we're having now, one-to-one. It, that alone helps to produce <laughs> having a room full of people. Just focus and be empathetic. That's part one. Yeah, I, I um, recently did, um, at the employer that I work for, we had available a, um, a neurodiverse and inclusion um, training and some of the things that that were included in that were like um, be transparent, bring things up ahead of time, ask questions rather than state demands, um, involvement in the process rather than expecting them to take action, um, things like that. Oh, and then another thing would be ask open-ended questions instead of yes or no questions. Okay. huge difference. Nice, nice. Um, so let, let's talk about um, an, another interesting topic that you've been um, also talking about is diversity as a whole. So it, it is um, LBGQ Awareness Month, um, but we've also talked about in the past um, trying to get diversity in general into cybersecurity. So when it comes to having a more diverse workforce within cybersecurity. Um, what are some of the, the pros that you've, you talk about uh, to encourage diversity within cybersecurity? Yep, no, that's, this is something that is near and dear to my heart because as everyone knows, like the tech world is a very specific, uh, I say demographic. I don't wanna call any specific races or anything, but <laughs> everyone, like, everyone knows, but there, Diversity is critically important because a lot of times people just want to go a certain route and to break that group thing, that, that single train of thought, we need diversity. We got, we got to have someone in the room who will say, great, it's great. We're going this way, but here's another idea. It's, it's something I, I, I remember growing up. I, just, I remember the Challenger shuttle explosion, like I was in school and one of the, I mean, when, when one reads the studies, one huge factor that led to that was groupthink. Because mm-hmm. everyone just assumed that nothing has ever happened to the space shuttle. So why would it have why would anything happen today? And 
as a result, all the issues that engineers saw were ignored. Mm -hmm. I can imagine just having someone to say, wait, there's a problem, stop. I think history would have been very different. Now in the cyber world, that is very much applicable even now. Like because of the burnout, a lot of time people just wanted to get their job done, but without the diversity inclusion, sometimes people will miss things. People will miss the insider threat or the or hostile nation state actor trying to hack their way in. Some sometimes is very critical even today to have a person who can see that who's a different mindset. Because even among, like, say, same gender, same race, same age, even if we're all same, the mindset of people can be different. Like, some people who are trans, they could see things very differently. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one of the the topics we talked about on our CISO Thursday a couple of weeks ago was the the Netflix documentary Coded Bias, mm. and, and for me, what really struck is how bias has been encoded into technology yes. um, from algorithms to just the way that things are tackled, um, and, and people have accepted it for so long and not even consider the ramifications of this bias. Yep, absolutely. It's not just that, but one area which people don't even think about is the leaders. Like, for example, like when people think of Walt Disney, they think of Disneyland, all these great, wonderful uh, things he did. But when you look at the, his personal history, he was horribly racist. He didn't like women. He didn't like... Jewish people who didn't like blacks, like, oh my God. But our history, we put a lot of leaders like that on a pedestal. Like imagine if he was alive and well today, would people be willing to step up and tell him, we got to hire, we, we need, you know, we need uh, more diversity inclusion, we need more women. He would have said, no, <laughs> can you imagine that today. But it's, like we're trying, it's like a little dirty little secret in 19 cyber. There are a lot of leaders who still think that like that, sadly. And I praise a lot of my fellow uh, men and women in cyber who have the courage to speak up on social media, social media to call out such individuals because as long as they're there and, and keeping out women, keeping out other races, we're not going to be, we're not going to have a diverse workforce globally unless things change. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I grew up in the Caribbean where I was a minority. Um, so I got to see things culturally from a different perspective. But then I was also raised with cultural values that are significantly different than mm. here in the United States. Um, I've had the opportunity to travel to Europe, to live in Europe for a year. And being exposed to different cultures, you really see how um, individuals from different ethnic, socioeconomic, um, educational backgrounds, um, or even like family backgrounds that live in the same city can have such a totally different approach to the same problem set. And if you try to limit your workforce to everything being the same, you're not going to include um, that, that wide capability of problem solving in your workforce. Absolutely. That's why having a diversity inclusion, not just of people, but of thought it is so critical these days. And another area where, where, which is not often discussed is ageism. Because 
I think around, I think the cutoff point is roughly like around 40. So once you get, when people get past 40, the ageism and discrimination at companies, it, it's sad, but it does happen. It's people are just shut out. Like they bring this tremendous wealth of experience, but a lot of companies, they just systematically shut out people like who are past like 40, 45, it's a huge wall. The, the, the funny thing to that is I've seen uh, statistics that show like um, those that are entrepreneurs, those that have been consistently working to build businesses, they tend to be more successful the older that they get because they've, yes. they've had that experience. They've, they've seen all the possible ways that things can go wrong and yes. they take that and then they're finally able to implement it in an organization or a new startup that you're successful in. So having young blood all the time isn't always the best thing. Um, Correct. It reminds me of the story of uh, this engineer. Like he worked on the engines for a US Navy combat ship. So problem with the ship is the engines were just making this loud noise and just wasn't efficient. And they had these teams of engineers just trying to figure out what is wrong. They spent months or almost a year trying to figure it out. They bring in this old, this uh, elderly man, the, one of the chief engineers who designed it, who was like laid off years ago. They brought him in for like one hour, one bag of his hammer on the engine. Everything was fixed. <laughs> just that one thing. <laughs> Yeah, it's hilarious. I mean, yeah, I I also get it often for those looking to break into cybersecurity, right? Um, coming whether they're coming out of the military by this mm. point, um, they're thirty, forty years old. They're transitioning into the corporate workforce, and they're thinking that they have to start over. Um, oh no! What they don't okay, take yeah. into consideration is all those transferable skills, right? Yes. Um, so let, let's talk about from both a, a neurodiversity approach, um, what some of those other skills that we, we kind of touched on in the beginning that can be transferred in from uh, the different fields that you said that individuals with neurodiverse backgrounds um, can have success in. Yep, that's a great question. And I think in terms of transferable skills, it's not just on the job experience. I, that's a piece that a lot of people miss. It could be simple as like helping out your buddy, like this, uh, do a project or volunteer work at a nonprofit. All of those are applicable experience that should be on your resume and that you can speak to in the, in the, in the interview. Or even, uh, I remember one cyber pro was telling was talking about on a webinar where he just helped a, uh, his dentist even just have a, a bit, better incident response plan, just small thing like that. That's experience. <laughs> and for uh, transferable skills, it can go across the board. Even I remember uh, one gentleman, he was a, uh, he managed a, a uh, Home Depot store. Dash man, that's applicable management experience that can be used in the cyber field. Like, you don't need to like be an expert hacker or to know everything A to Z. You just have to have applicable, applicable skills to do the job and be able to demonstrate it. Or number two, be able to learn it really quick. Absolutely. Um, you're getting some really nice feedback there. <laughs> and you're awesome. Uh, that is from Benjamin McEwen. Thank you. Um, and he says that you rock. Um, some of the things that, that I think about as, as you're talking is that individuals with neurodiversity all, always had to struggle 
with overcoming obstacles and finding finding ways about about problems and that, that lends to resiliency and uh troubleshooting skills that many overlook what are your thoughts absolutely on yep absolutely because a lot of people are neurodiverse similar to me we are we tend to be very technical and it's not just tech either i remember from one movie uh, it was called midway where they had code breakers and some of them came from like say uh, a band like who thought that a person who was in music could be good at cryptography which is perhaps the historical basis for cybersecurity today which that's an example right there it's like if you're good at music you might have the mindset to be good at cybersecurity also the the technical piece is like one of my very 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 first jobs in the technical field in uh when i was in it was i was just a technician i was <laughs> i was really good at it too back in the day which is a another historical how you say uh entry-level job for many people who transition to cyber just doing help desk or it the other piece which is a huge barrier for many was deciding which job in cyber is right for them because when people think of cybersecurity, the default mindset is hacker or pen testing, which is completely false. Mm-hmm. I actually posted about this on LinkedIn last year where I stated that, and that had a, I say, a very global, I say viral discussion where, like say I had roughly around 500 hits, mm-hmm. 500 hits and comments and roughly 30,000 uh, re- uh, reads from around the world. Because people didn't think about that, you just naturally default to hacker. But in cybersecurity, there's just so many, many jobs. There's like SOC, there's privacy professionals, there's, in my view, and personally, even a teacher. A teacher is also crucial for the cybersecurity pipeline. Teachers, incident responders, people who are just even uh, do give talks on uh, what do you call it, security awareness training. They're all crucial. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. One of the comments from um, Benjamin mentioned yep. that um, some disciplines I like, like uh, music trains the brain to be able to focus on complex things. Um, and pen tester jobs only account for 7% of the cybersecurity work. Uh, definitely agree there. Um, and yes, music is also very technical. Yes. Um, <laughs> when it comes to uh, some of the other roles that you think... Um, we could just take your perspective, right? Because you can't speak for everyone. Mm. And I think often that's part of where this conversation goes wrong is people think that one perspective is the only perspective. Uh, But for you, you mentioned that um, there's many other roles in cybersecurity. For you, which ones are the most interesting to you and why? Oh, that's a good question. For me, I think think I've done everything except I am. For me, I, I didn't like being being neurodiverse and struggling with social interactions. I didn't like being a manager too much. So that alone is a huge barrier for, for people who are neurodiverse. Because quite frankly, for people who are neurodiverse like me or, or even people who are not, some people, quite frankly, might not want to manage people. They could be just happier just focusing on a technical side. So the career paths and IT and cyber is still broken at many companies. Usually, like, you work from the ground up from uh, entry level to mid-level, and then you advance to, like, manager and then executive positions. Like, 
I don't, I, I, I do not aspire to that at all mm-hmm. because I'm not comfortable being a manager. For me, I, I aspire to be for a more technical role, like, like a architect position mm-hmm. where I don't have to manage people as much. I can imagine many others would as well. So it all comes down to individual needs and companies, companies need to do a better job to adjust the career pathways to, to accommodate people who want a technical role, who do not want to be managing people. So that's another piece to it. And I like what you said earlier about the different cybersecurity roles, because one thing that came to mind is RPG game, like the old school Dungeons and Dragons. Mm-hmm. If people play such games, that can also help to identify based on one's personality, what would be the best job for them. Like if you're a healer, you'd be better, better in support role. Like, or do you want to be in the front line or, or be in the front line or, or even a attack at range? So it's mm-hmm. being, so RPG games that explore these different roles or, uh, how you say, uh, it, it just brings out your personality more when you play them, mm-hmm. which might then in turn help you to identify the best cyber job for you. Absolutely. And one of the comments um, back from Benjamin is that he prefers being a manager because uh, he can call the shots. And like we said, every, everyone's different. Yep. Um, I personally love leading people. Um, I find that um, being able to inspire, grow, coach people, um, as much as I love the technical, um, I like to say I play between um, people, process, and technology mm. uh, and become that translator. And being a people manager for me allows me to utilize the best resources uh, from my team for the specific task. Mm. And then that way, um, we could get the best outcome uh, for, for the team as a whole. Um, <clears throat> so, so question for you. I, I know um, we're about a half hour in, um, a lot of, I've seen a lot of growth in the technical space into developing those tracks. You have the individual contributor tracks, which it sounds like you might be more towards where uh, you become a principal, then you become a staff, which is equivalent over to becoming a a manager or director um, in in the other tracks. And maybe architect is like the final stage, so to speak. Mm. Um, When it comes to looking for new roles, right? What are some of the challenges that, that you faced outside of the interview process? Um, do you feel that uh, the way that roles are described makes it challenging for you to understand? Oh, yes. Or, <laughs> let, let's talk to that about, let's talk to- Oh, that. yes. And you probably, that's a very important question too, because I think everyone knows the job description for cyber jobs, it's broken, it's really broken. But I remember even a entry level job. Uh, I, I remember very clearly entry level pen tester job. That one and the right job script required OSCP, which is one of the top uh, cybersecurity certifications to get, and one of the, one of the, it's one of the most prestigious and one of the hardest to get. Mm-hmm. I have even seen some organizations they require, like say, uh, for entry level, like a G pen. For me, that speaks to discrimination because a lot of people in certain Demographics cannot afford a SAN certification or a course. But also, like, what I would, to solve that, what I want to see, what would I, I would want to see is a, a standardized framework, which I believe this and some, some friends are working on, 
a standardized framework to standardize the job descriptions across mm -hmm. the board so that it's more realistic. Like you don't need 10 years experience to become an analyst for entry level, like come on. <laughs> or I've even seen some job descriptions where for new futuristic technology just came out in the past month, the job description requires five years experience in that new technology, which is ridiculous. No one's going to have that. <laughs> yeah, I remember seeing um, a, a meme about the, the creator of Kubernetes going, yes. oh, well, I, I guess I can't get a job working for this company because I only have four years of Kubernetes and they want 10. Yes. And, oh, well. <laughs> but on that point, my business, when people see these high, this high wall, these, all these requirements, they get discouraged. Most people will not even apply for those jobs. The way I got my very first cyber job, I ignored all that. I just applied, just apply for the job. Even if you can't do, like say, 50% of the job, just apply for it because you'd be surprised. Because a lot of hiring managers in HR, to be honest, a lot, of, a lot of people won't even know what a lot of those acronyms even mean, to be honest. The important thing is, get in the door, get into the interview and just show your enthusiasm. Just because sometimes the other piece to it is luck. Mm -hmm. Luck. Sometimes you just got to get lucky. Oh, I like that response from Simon, passion. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah. And I recently just shared um, an HBR article that, that said the exact same thing. And when it comes to the way that I've been coaching and mentoring people over the years, it takes that same track as well. I personally have never applied for a job where I meet 100% of the, the job description because that tells me one thing. I'm going to go in and I'll be cruising in that job. And I never want to take a job where I'm going to go be going in and cruising. Um, some people might want that, right? But for me, I'm go I'm looking at a role and I want to meet 50, 60 percent of the job description. That way I have uh, 40 to 50 percent growth within that role. And I'm thinking like over the next two years so that I see myself growing in the role rather than stagnating and staying the same. Mm, absolutely. And I think I, I really remember there were studies done which looked at this along gender gender lines. I think roughly like for men, even even if they could do only twenty five percent of the job, they apply anyway and they still get the job. Whereas women, if they get cannot even do fifty percent of the job, that alone discourages them. That's why I, I very much encourage everyone just apply for the job. But even better, if you know anyone who can refer you, that's even better because that that cuts some of the red tape the referral and get it absolutely so let's talk about that um knowing people networking um yes. I, i'm guessing for me as an introvert that's that's been challenging um i know i might not look like an introvert but i'm uh sometimes very much introverted and networking in person has always been a challenge um online i'm a little little freer been more comfortable with it. But what are some of the challenges when it comes to networking and meeting new people that um, individuals that are neurodivergent might have? So ironically, with the COVID pandemic and we're all working from home now, that has provided a huge opportunity for neurodiverse people like me because I'm much more comfortable at working at home. So that, that'd be my advice. That's one piece of advice I have right there. Like, you don't have to go to the conferences. You don't, you don't have to be in a place where you're not comfortable. 
just stay in your comfort zone. Just take incremental steps, like just participate in an online community or even a, a session like this, just small group of small online meeting with on Zoom or whatnot. Just mm-hmm. get, get out of your comfort zone in increments. Stay like swear, stay comfortable. And, and when it comes to like the relationship building aspect, which is critical um, of networking, how do you um, how do you expose or discuss um, your concerns with um, your neurodiversity? Because you don't want to be targeted. You don't want to be ridiculed. Um, mm. I, I know some people are fearful of that. And um, so w- what are some of the challenges when it, when it comes to that? Because ideally, if you're always small, comfortable, um, you end up in the same group, right? So then you're not in a diverse group anymore everyone might be neurodiverse compared to the larger population, mm. but then you group amongst yourselves and you become the same. So w- what techniques do you have for going outside of that comfort zone um, to really be effective in networking? Great question. The way I went about that, I took kind of like a, almost like an inverse approach. So last year I created a, I started a podcast called the Neurosec Podcast, mm-hmm. where I interviewed many incredible people who are neurodiverse and work in cyber and that it kind of helps me in a way because by giving the opportunity for others to tell their stories it kind of like kind of brought me out of the comfort zone a little bit and it made me a little more open to talk about my own experiences so that's how i address that and number two is just another outlet is social media or writing articles like we don't have to do it all in person we can just find our find a outlet where we can express ourselves either podcasts or write articles or just posting on social media that alone just can drive conversations Uh, absolutely and some of the the tips that i give whether it is getting hiring managers attention or demonstrating subject matter expertise is kind of like uh picking a subject area and Mm. doing a deep dive on it doing a, a post or an article or a blog on it and then um sharing your approach because that could highlight to a potential hiring manager that they might be the talent that you're looking for. Absolutely. Another thing that came to mind is another huge barrier for breaking into cyber is experience. Like when people see, oh, we've got to, we need five to 10 year experience for this entry level role. I talked about this earlier, but volunteer work is also, it counts. And I don't think people are saying that enough in the cyber world. This, for me personally, I do a lot of volunteer work. I'm on currently on three, I think four boards now. <laughs> that that counts. But even in something as simple as going out into, com- into the community, because if you think about it, when the hostile nation states, when they want to like, say attack, like say a government agency or military facility, they don't attack directly. They spend their, they take their time to attack the more vulnerable places like your mom and pop shops or your di- your local uh, grocery store or your den- local dentist or your local flower shop because they don't, they will not have cybersecurity controls in place or not as much. So by compromising them and, and they can essentially uh, create an army of zombie or what's called a botnet, they can slave all of them together and launch a huge DDoS attack against government agencies. But when people think about it, 
those type of agencies, those mom and pop stores, your local neighborhood businesses, they are not getting the support they need in terms of like cybersecurity or even basic security best practices. So that those are the areas which are a huge opportunity, which is often overlooked. So if you want cyber experience, more cyber security experience, just get together with your buddies, just help your local committees to do these things, just like security awareness training or helping them to understand best practices, just having antivirus and patching. Small volunteer projects like that, that counts as cybersecurity experience. Absolutely. And that really ties into um, there, there's been a change in the U.S. policy to ransomware and that came with an executive memo. And in that executive memo that was recently released, talked to some basic cyber practices. And um, in some Slack channels that I've been in, people are like, well, we've been talking about these basic practices for years. I'm like, well, there's a reason that you're still <laughs> highlighting it is that people are still struggling with them. Right. It's not revolutionary here, but um it provides simple guidance for the mom and pop stores. And mm. even that same guidance escalated to a medium size or enterprise company. If they can't follow that simple guidance, there, there's bigger trouble ahead. So um, use that same experience. Um, what are some of the other ways that you found to gain experience that was helpful for you in your career? Uh, for me, it's mostly volunteer, but also like, for example, when I reviewed my current position. They really enjoyed that. They enjoyed all my DNI work, all the things I'm doing with supporting neurodiversity, women cyber. That was a huge, uh, call it, that's a big way how I differentiated myself from the pack. Mm -hmm. A lot of people, they don't do as much. They just want to just work. But that goes to show that some companies, they care not just what you do in your current job, but they also care about volunteer work and what you do outside of work. It really does make a huge difference. And uh, I think to your other point about discussing about helping companies, like the best practices, like best practices are out there, but I think one huge reason why a lot of companies are not following it is legacy. Legacy systems are just out there and just like, that's the word, I, the term that's often used from this one show, Big, the, Big Birth does. It's kind of like a dark secret that people hide in their closets, but it's the system are just so critical to the functionality of a company that they don't want to touch it. They don't want to upgrade it. They don't want to break it. So they just ignore it. And it's a huge like vulnerability right there. Hashtag mainframe. Um. <laughs> <laughs> One crazy thought I had out of history is something if people uh, remember back in the day, the Marshall Plan like after World War II, the countries of Europe and were the countries of Europe particularly were devastated. They were all like in ruins and the US led the way the Marshall Plan and loaning out money to these countries to help them to rebuild. I think that one thing that would help is something similar. If we had something similar to the Marshall Plan so that loans could be provided to companies to replace these legacy systems, get rid of these old vulnerabilities. I think you'll see a lot of, uh, we call it the, uh, a lot of their security postures will improve dramatically, but alas, the money is a huge factor. So by providing it something similar to the Marshall Plan through like low, low interest rate loans, just having something that like that in place, I think that will help. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's 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 the risk conversation that us yes. cybersecurity professionals need to have. Um, 
every day that you have a system that you don't patch it, it increases your technical debt. Um, and there's two ways to pay for technical debt. Yes. There's a business outage and there is um, doing it slowly and surely and doing it yourself. Um, but Nathan, I really wanted to thank you. It was a great conversation. We've had lots Absolutely. of interaction from the audience. Um, thank you so much for coming on. And is there anything else that you wanted to share with the audience that you might do for the community that you wanted oh, to bring up? Absolutely. Uh, my friend, Carmen Marsh, he's, had, he's hosting the Cybersecurity Women of the Year Awards on, in Las Vegas on August the 3rd. It's a great opportunity for, for, uh, for people to, uh, especially women, to network and meet amazing, incredible leaders and uh, executives and professionals in cybersecurity because network, like you said, Chris, networking is just so crucial to getting that job. So it's a great, so you can go to the event and you can watch to see who's going to win, which, which amazing women are going to win the awards. So it's a great opportunity. So that's be August 3rd in Las Vegas. Okay. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. And I, I know that you don't want to say this, but um, you've been a big promoter of um, bringing everyone into the community as possible. Uh, you mentioned that Microsoft has been a, a huge supporter of yourself. So I'll give them a shout out for being so welcoming to the neurodiverse community. And thank you everyone for coming today and hope you all have a great weekend. Thank you. Thanks everyone. Bye. In the rapidly evolving world of cybersecurity, your business needs a guide that's as dynamic as the threats you face. CPF Coaching LLC delivers unparalleled expertise to elevate your cybersecurity startup or business with a decade and a half of specialized experience. We're not just advisors, we're your strategic partners in growth and risk mitigation. Our tailored advisory services range from immediate hourly guidance to comprehensive three or six month packages, all supported with encrypted messaging for real-time assistance. For more information, cpfcoaching.com is your destination. Forge a path to success and distinction in the cybersecurity landscape. Connect with CPF Coaching LLC today and secure your business's future.